Shabbat Shalom. Welcome, everyone. We're glad you could make it. Let's go ahead and open up in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get into today's lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you today and thank you and praise you for being God of our lives, for revealing yourself to us and giving us an opportunity to celebrate your Shabbat, to worship together, to focus on you, and to know you more. I ask, Father, that you would help me to reveal your heart of the Shabbat in this teaching this morning. We thank you and praise you for all you've done, all you're going to do. In the name of Messiah Yeshua, Amen. A couple of weeks, we'll be entering into the month of Elul. And during the month of Elul, we prepare ourselves for the High Holy Days. The Beth Adonai teaching ministry will be giving you some teachings over the next few weeks to prepare yourself for those high holy days. And we do the same thing during the spring as we lead up to the spring feast. But there's one holy day, one of those Moedim, those appointed times in Leviticus 23, that somehow doesn't get caught up in either one of those teachings. And there's a reason for it. It's because it's a weekly feast. It's not associated with either the spring feast or the fall feast. It stands on its own, and that is the Shabbat. So since we rarely get into teaching about Shabbat, I wanted to set aside today and talk about Shabbat. And I love how things work out. I like to say sometimes God has a sense of humor. As I was putting together this teaching, I didn't realize that this very week, we will be reading two of the passages that I'll be sharing with you today from this teaching. These actually came out of our Parsha. So he just aligns things so beautifully sometimes. It's amazing. And so I want to start with the first one of those two passages. This one is from Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It tells us to observe the day of Shabbat, to set it apart as holy, as Adonai, your God, ordered you to do. You have six days to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai, your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work. Not you, your son, or your daughter. Not your male or female slave. Not your ox, your donkey, or any of your other livestock. And not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property so that your male and female servants can rest just as you do. You are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your God brought you out from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Adonai your God has ordered you to keep the day of Shabbat. And like I said, when I put together this teaching and, and had it scheduled for today, I did not realize that reading would be in there. So and there's another one we'll come across later, same thing. So let's be honest. If you are like me and you came into the Messianic movement through, from the church, probably one of the biggest changes you had to make was learning to set aside your routine, what you had always been accustomed to doing on Saturday, and reserving that, that day specifically for God. Because we were always taught and conditioned to set aside Sunday as that day. And I'll admit it was a big adjustment for me. Saturday had always been my day, get up, go to the grocery store, do my errands, come home, spend the rest of the day doing laundry, cleaning house, you name it. Then on Sunday, go to church, set that day aside. But when I began attending here at Beth Adonai, I had to make some changes. At that time, we were actually meeting on Friday evenings, so I would come to service on Friday night. Then on Saturday, I would set that aside as my Sabbath and then try to do my other stuff on Sunday. But I have to be honest, that took a lot of adjustment because every, for a long time, I would go into the grocery store bright and early on Sunday morning, and I would feel awkward. Has anybody ever been there? I felt like people were looking at me and saying, you heathen, why aren't you in church? And I would talk to myself and say, you know, if they're here, that means they're not in church either. So who are they to judge me? And I went yesterday, and I almost wanted to wear a sign on myself saying, hey, I do honor God. I went to service yesterday. <laughs> and it took me a while to get out of that it, because it was so conditioned. I was around 40, in my early 40s, actually, when I first came here. So it had really been ingrained in me from the time I was born. So 
took a while to get that out of me. And then after about a year or so of having our services on Friday night, we moved them to Saturday morning. And then over a period of time, we began to add classes in the afternoon, dance class, Torah classes, you name it. And so now, our Shabbat is a day that's really set aside for God around here. And I love it. It's something I look forward to each and every week. And this is what leads me to our topic this morning, Shabbat. I want to talk about what it is. I want to talk about why it's important and how we should honor it. In preparing this lesson, I pulled from a number of different sources, but there's two primary sources that I used. The first one is called God's Appointed Times, a practical guide for understanding and celebrating the biblical holidays by Barney Kasdan. And if you don't have that book, to me, it, it's a very thin book. It's very easy to read. Each of the Moedim has probably maybe 10 pages or something set aside for it. So it's not a huge read. It's not a time drain. But I would recommend that for any Messianic family to have a copy of that book in their library. Then there is a publication that Judy actually pulled together uh, to help people who come out of the church and was tr were trying to understand Shabbat. That's called the Complete Shabbat Table Companion. And that was one that I got from her very early on in my time here at Beth Adonai. And there was a lot of very helpful information that she had pulled together there. Some of it came from Barney Kasdan's book. Some of it came from other sources. Some of it came from experience. But it's really good material. So getting to the lesson itself, in Leviticus 23, 1 through 3, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. Work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest, a holy convocation. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. So let's start at the beginning. Shabbat. That word does have a meaning. It means to rest. Okay, says a lot right there. Our Heavenly Father knows that we need to step back from our hectic schedules, our hectic lives, and rest. Our career, school, household responsibilities, family life, activities, the list goes on and on. We're consumed with those six days a week, but on that seventh day, we need to get our priorities straight and focus on him and not on these other things. All the technology that we have today was supposed to make our lives simpler. But guess what? It's actually made it just the opposite. We're always connected now. Somebody can always reach us. It's hard to get away and really rest. It's hard to unplug, if you want to use that term. But the good news is that Adonai has given us an opportunity once a week, every seven days, that we can step out of that daily routine and focus on him and allow ourselves to recharge for the week ahead. We see the very first demonstration of a day of rest in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis. God created for six days. Then on the seventh day, he rested from his work, setting an example for us. That passage reads, by the seventh day, God, and that's the wrong one I've got up there, sorry. It's the one I read a few moments ago. Well, maybe I didn't put that one in here. Nope, I didn't. Okay, so let me just read it to you. It's very short. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So if God rests, shouldn't we follow his example? Consequently, the seventh day is to be a perpetual reminder of God the creator and our need to find rest in him. And we see that in Exodus chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. And, okay, here we go. No? I thought I had put these in here, but I guess I didn't. So, my bad. I marked them in here that I did. 
Okay, that says the people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat through all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel forever. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and rested. Something I need to clarify is that, I think my cord just hit this thing. Oh, Oh, was it? Okay, so it was the right one. Okay, I apologize. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Judy, you're getting, it's going to be a habit. <laughs> okay. Instead of beginning at sunrise to align with our modern calendar system, the beginning of Shabbat coincides with the biblical calendar system. And what I mean by that is if you go into Genesis and you read God created. The first day was at night. It was evening. He created the evening and it says there was evening. Then there was morning. So the evening is the beginning of the new day. And that's a little different than what we're accustomed to thinking about in our Western mindset. So Shabbat begins at sunset on Friday evening. And it ends at sunset on Saturday evening, which is something that's important that we'll talk about a little later on. We need to understand that. In Leviticus chapter 23, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. In other words, God sets the schedule, not man. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a few minutes. Adonai then goes on to give instructions about the feast, specifically the weekly Shabbat, Passover, First Fruits, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So of these, if I were to ask you, just think about this a moment, if I were to ask you which is the most important, which one would you say is the most important and why? When that question was first posed to me, I was inclined to respond Yom Kippur because that's a very somber day when we repent, we reflect on the great sacrifice that was made for us by Yeshua. I also quickly thought of Passover, because that is when Yeshua gave his life for our sins. He became sin in our place. He took our place. He took our punishment. And both are very important days, and they're very holy days. And to be honest, trying to determine which of the Moedim is the most important it's almost an unfair task because each one of them is so important. You cannot diminish the importance of any of them. They all play a pivotal role in the plan of our Heavenly Father. But it's easy to make the case that Shabbat is the most important, and I want to explain why I say that. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we see the Creator Himself observe Shabbat in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 setting an example for us. It is the first appointed time that Adonai gave to Moses. It is the only appointed time that is mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Each week we say the Vehafta and the Vehafta Leriacha. One way that we can fulfill these prayers is by honoring the Shabbat as commanded because in doing so we first honor God by demonstrating our love for him. As commanded by Yeshua in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, which we read in our Parsha this past week. You are to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important mitzvah. And we also demonstrate our love for others for our family, employees, co-workers, strangers, so forth, by allowing them an opportunity to join in our rest, thus weakly declaring our love for them, also as we see in Matthew 22, verse 40, that we read this week. And a second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two mitzvot. God intended Shabbat to be a time for man, to make time for both God and his family, and that it should be a celebration as an everlasting covenant. Shabbat is also a sign, and we see that in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. 
And I won't take time to read it, but you may want to read it for yourself. Again, Exodus 31, 12 through 17. In verse 17, we're told that it will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. The Hebrew word for sign indicates a pledge or token of what is promised. God has made promises to his people, and Shabbat is a visible token of his commitment to keep those promises. It also set the Hebrews apart from everyone else because the pagans worked seven days a week. And likewise, it sets us in modern times apart from our society. As I mentioned earlier, Saturday is not a day that most people in our society really they, they, most of them, very few honor it as God's Sabbath. Most people, if they are inclined to honor God, they do it on Sunday. So that sets us apart. Again, it's a sign for us as well. And this brings up an interesting question. Some people believe that Gentiles are not obligated to keep Shabbat, and that Sunday is their appointed day of worship. But here's what they're missing. Since we should worship God every day, there's nothing wrong with their meeting on Sunday to worship together corporately. But, this is the missing piece, Sunday has not replaced Shabbat for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile. Mark, 2, 20, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Yeshua declares that, quote, Shabbat was made for man, some translations use the word mankind, not man for Shabbat. This means that the feast is for everyone because notice he used the word man or mankind. Okay? That translates into a generic word for humanity. So that includes both Jew and Gentile. It's not exclusive to just the Jewish people. We also see in Isaiah 56 verses 2 through 7 that it makes clear that all are invited to partake of Shabbat which is meant to be a delight. And I want to read this passage, and I really want you to listen to these words because they're very telling. Happy is the person who does this, anyone who grasps it firmly, who keeps Shabbat and does not profane it and keeps himself from doing any evil. A foreigner joining Adonai should not say, Adonai will separate me from his people. Likewise, the eunuch should not say, I am only a dried-up tree, for here is what Adonai says. As for the eunuchs who keep my Shabbats, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, in my house, within my walls, I will give them power and a name greater than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai to serve him, to love the name of Adonai and to be his workers, all who keep Shabbat and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be, a, be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Some translations say all nations. So clearly all people are invited and welcome participate in the Shabbat, not just the Jewish people. And after we read a passage like that, the question arises, why would we not want to participate? I can't understand why anyone would want to decline Adonai's invitation to participate in his beautiful day of rest. Rather than working ourselves into the ground, we need to have enough trust in him and his provision to say, six days is enough to rest. I'm going to dedicate the seventh day to you because I know you will take care of me. Let's be honest, God expects and even demands our obedience, but he also promises blessings in exchange for that obedience. So it should come as no surprise that Shabbat is mentioned as one of those specific areas of obedience that he blesses. In Leviticus chapter 26, it explains the blessings of obedience as well as the consequences of disobedience. One of the consequences of disobedience would be the expulsion from the land for the people. And in fact, the failure of the people to keep Shabbat was actually one of the things that resulted in their being expelled in order to give the land a chance to have the Shabbats that the people had failed to give it. Now on the positive side, for those who are obedient, Isaiah 58 
verses 13 and 14 give us these encouraging words. If you hold back your foot on Shabbat from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call Shabbat a delight, Adonai's holy day, worth honoring, then honor it by not doing your usual things or pursuing your interests or speaking about them. If you do, you will find delight in Adonai. I will make you ride on the heights of the land and feed you with the heritage of your ancestor, Yaakov. For the mouth of Adonai has spoken. While we're on the subject of obedience, I want to stress something here. We do not keep Shabbat as an effort to try to earn our salvation. So obedience in this area is not legalism, as some people will tell you. Oh, you're legalistic. No, instead, what we're trying to do is we're seeking to please our Heavenly Father because we have been redeemed. We want to honor him and show our appreciation to him because of what he has done for us. By doing those things, he said pleases him. Big difference in those two concepts. But I also want to warn you about going to extreme on the other side as well because there's some people who have gone to extremes and trying to honor Shabbat. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. The Jewish sages and rabbis, with good intentions, developed a long list of restrictions and regulations to prevent people from violating the command. And put another way, they built a hedge around the Sabbath. I want to give you the, those examples. The, in the time of the Essenes, and this one may come as a surprise, but it's interesting and it's telling, certain bathroom functions were actually prohibited on the Sabbath because they were deemed to be work. Think about that one. Okay. In more modern times, the elevators in many hotels in Israel actually stop automatically on each floor on the Sabbath because they don't want people to have to touch the buttons in the elevator because that's work. Now, Steve and I actually experienced that when we were in Israel with Rabbi Scott and Judy on a tour a few years ago. I think we were on the fifth floor in Jerusalem, and the elevator was so slow because it would it's slow anyway because it's you know, not a tall hotel, but it uh, stop. Uh, stop. We quickly found out it was easier to take the staircase up and down five flights than it was to wait on the elevator. Okay? Then there's the flip side as well, the extremes. Some Bible teachers teach against following God's commandments because they view that as legalism. Some have even gone to the ultimate extreme and stated that it's an abomination to God when we try to keep the commandments. Let that one digest for a moment. How is doing what God says pleases him an abomination? Those are your hypergrace teachers, and they're to be avoided. We've talked about them before. Yeshua actually told his followers to keep his commands. And that brings up the question, what commands were Yeshua referring to? Now, you can approach that question from two different directions, but I'll tell you right now, they both circle around, they just go in a different direction and come back at the same point. First, you can view it as Yeshua is part of the Godhead. So he is God. His commandments would therefore be the same commandments that were given by Adonai. You can take the other approach and you can say, like the hypergrace teachers do, that there are now only two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But guess what? That only brings up the question of how you demonstrate that love. Love is not a feeling. There's a lot more to it than that. So even when you come along with that reasoning, you have to determine how you keep those commandments. The bottom line is the commandments of Yeshua are the same as the commandments of his Father because when you look at those commandments, love God, love your fellow man. Take the Ten Commandments as a starting point. Let's set up like two big books here. We got a book that says how to honor God, how to love God. Another book says how to love my fellow man. Take the Ten Commandments so you can split them out. Commandment one here, two here, here, and all ten of them you can put under one of those two headings. Try it. It works. Then you can take the rest of the commandments and you can put those under those various ten commandments. So the ten commandments are like headings under those books and the other commandments are the how-to, how you actually demonstrate and do. So you wind up at the same point, regardless of which way you approach that question of which commandments are Yeshua's. They're the same as his father. That's why Yeshua says that all of the law is encompassed in those two commandments. He was not doing away with the others, 
but giving the people a quick way to remember that they should demonstrate their love of God and others by obeying those commandments. Then there's that subset of people who think that we can substitute our favorite leisure activity or sport for a Shabbat rest because of the liberty we have in Messiah. But that's we, we need to be careful when we go there. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to go there for a moment. Because I've known people who would frequently, and I want to underline that word frequently, skip Shabbat services to go fishing or hiking because they said they felt closer to God there than they did here in the congregation with their family, the congregational family. To them, those ex activities were spiritual experiences. But what did Adonai just tell us in Isaiah 58:13 that we looked at a few moments ago? He said, if you hold back your foot on Shabbat from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call Shabbat a delight, Adonai's holy day, worth honoring, then honor it by not doing your usual things or pursuing your interests or speaking about them. And in fact, we're reminded in the Brit Hadashah that we are not to forsake assembling ourselves together. And we see several examples in scripture of Yeshua and his disciples doing just that, getting together at the synagogue on a regular basis. And that confirms to us that corporate worship is very important. Shabbat should be about Adonai, not about us, not about our favorite activities. Now, I'm not going to take a legalistic approach here and tell you that if you go out to sporting activity or do something you want to do on Shabbat, that you're going to go to hell. I'm not going to tell you that because that's not true. There are times we may need to pull away. Things happen. God knows that. I'm talking about doing this on a regular basis, which I've seen people do. If it happens a few times, God knows. He knows situations. He knows sometimes there's a legitimate need for us to step away and do something else. He understands that. Sometimes we need to just get away, maybe go to the mountains one day and just refocus. Okay? We all need those breaks. But when we do it on a regular basis... You need to stop and think about prioritizing and realize that God needs to come first. And we have people that fret about whether they should work on the Sabbath. And again, this, there's a lot of gray areas here. Um, there are situations where it's perfectly acceptable to work on the Sabbath. We see Yeshua himself even worked on the Sabbath. He healed a man with a shriveled hand, and you can go on and on. We see that he and his disciples plucked grain on the Sabbath in Matthew 12. That was determined to be work. He explained to his critics that it's perfectly acceptable to do good on the Sabbath. So we've got people that have to work on the Sabbath. They're law enforcement people. They're medical workers. The list can go on and on. There are legitimate reasons for people to work on the Sabbath. So we need to use wisdom, discernment, and follow the Lord's guidance. When these things come up, there may be a legitimate reason to do so. We don't want to judge other people harshly when they have to work on, on the Sabbath. God knows our situations. We need to take it to him and leave it with him and trust that he will work it out for us. And we need to appreciate those people who do have to sacrifice the Shabbat in order to do good for the community. We need to honor them, pray for them, and be there to support them best we can. The bottom line, though, is this. We need to be able to differentiate from work that can and should be done on Shabbat from work that is not necessary to do on Shabbat. And that's the difference. If we're saving a life, assisting someone in need, and on and on, that's acceptable. We even saw Yeshua do it. As we saw a few moments ago in Mark 2.27, Yeshua declared Shabbat was made for man, not man for Shabbat. There are some things in this world that we will be faced with on Shabbat. And some have clear answers, as I said, some don't. So just seek the Lord's guidance. So now, that said, I want to spend some time talking about the traditional Jewish observance of Shabbat. There we go. And to be honest, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach here. There, we have a few basics in Scripture, um, but a lot of it is open to interpretation. A lot of it is very flexible, so we can customize it to our specific personality. The two things that we're really told about Shabbat that are not flexible, we need to set the, side of the day aside to rest in him. We need to remember, okay? So remember is number one, 
and by remembering we recall or recollect past events and experiences and renew them in the present. Shabbat gives us an opportunity to do that, to reconnect ourselves to one another and to our Heavenly Father, as well as to appreciate our blessings. So we remember. The second is to keep the Sabbath day holy. The Hebrew word translated keep is shamor. That means to guard something that is held in trust, to protect, and to watch closely. This means that in addition to remembering and reflecting on the Shabbat, we are to guard and protect its sanctity as something of great value. And we do that by refraining from secular activities, especially work. For most families, Shabbat preparation begins early on Friday afternoons. The most festive linens are often laid out, along with the best silverware in China. Many families will even serve the finest meal of the week for Shabbat to emphasize how special the day is. It's customary to give tzedakah, or charity, by putting a few coins in a tzedakah box before lighting the Shabbat candles. And this is in keeping with the concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world, that we've talked about a lot here. Many families will set the tzedakah box next to the candles to remind them to perform this mitzvah. A special blessing is said after putting money into the tzedakah box. It's Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaLam, Asher Kidshanu, Bamitzvatav, Isivanu Al HaZedakah. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with thy commandments and commanded us about the tzedakah. Then, at 18 minutes before sunset, the candles are lit, and you light them before sunset, because at sunset, Shabbat begins, and you don't want to do work after Shabbat begins. And lighting a candle, kindling light is con and fire is considered work. Most people use two candles. Have you ever wondered why? Okay, there's an interesting answer to that. In ancient times, houses typically had only two rooms. So one candle was lit for each room so that each room would have light. Lighting them just before sunset, as I said, prevented them from kindling fire on the Sabbath and thus violating the Sabbath. Two, also, from the spiritual perspective, represents the twofold commandment to remember and sanctify or set apart as holy. So two is a really good number. But there is no commandment that it has to be two. You can light more candles if you would like, and some families actually do. Some families will light a, a candle for each room. Some families will light a candle for each member of the family. So again, it's one of those areas where there's flexibility. The person who lights the candles and says the blessing is typically a woman, but there's, if there's not a woman in the house, it's perfectly acceptable for a man or boy to do it. If it's a woman, she'll put on a scarf, she'll put it over her head, she'll light the two candles or however many there are, then she'll move her arms around in a circular motion three times to draw in the warmth of the lights. The first passing of her hands brings the light into her home. The second brings the light to her family. And the third brings the light to herself. When she's saying these blessings, she actually covers her eyes because she doesn't want to enjoy the light of the Sabbath until she has thanked Adonai for it. Those lights remind us of the joy and the blessing, the serenity and the peace that should characterize the Shabbat. And there's actually two blessings I want to share with you. One is a traditional Jewish blessing and the other is a Messianic blessing. Some people in the Messianic community will substitute the Messianic blessing for the traditional. Others will say both. The traditional is Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaAlam, Asher Kidshanu Bamitzvatav, Bitsivanu Lahad Lechner Shel Shabbat. And it translates as, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to kindle the Sabbath candles. The Messianic version is very similar. It's Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaAlam, Asher Kidshanu Bid Varacha, Vanatan Lanu et Yeshua Mishikenu Vitavanu Le'eot Or HaOlam. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us in your word and given us Yeshua our Messiah and commanded us to be light to the world. Amen. Now, something interesting about the order. Did you notice that the blessing and the act are actually reversed here with the candles? In most cases, 
if you'll notice, the blessing is recited before an act. But in the case of the Shabbat candles, the act precedes the blessing. And like I said a few moments ago, it's because once she's pronounced that blessing, she's accepted the Sabbath restrictions. And if she lights the candles after that, she's violated the Sabbath command about work. There's also a nice reading that's included in the complete Shabbat table companion I mentioned earlier. And it adds a really nice touch. It's called the lights of Shabbat. And it reminds us of the significance of the candlelight. This is what it tells us. Light reminds us of God. The Lord is my light and salvation. Light reminds us of his image within us. The human spirit is the light of the Lord. Light reminds us of God's covenant with us. For the mitzvah is a lamp and the Torah is a light. Light reminds us of Israel's calling. I have made you a covenant people, a light to the nations. Light reminds us of the world to come. In that day they will need no light, for the Lord God will give them light. Light reminds us of the Messiah. He said, I am the light of the world. Come, let us welcome Shabbat, and to God sing praise and pray for eternal Shabbat, the end of days. So now that the Sabbath would have been ushered in, special blessings are typically said over the various members of the family, and they start with the children. The boys are blessed by praying over them, may the Lord make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. The girls are blessed with this, may the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. The entire family will be blessed with the ironic benediction that we say every week. And then a husband may wish to bless his wife by reading about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 33, excuse me, Proverbs 31, verses 13 through 31. After which the wife may wish to bless her husband with Psalm 112, verses 1 through 9, which talks about the virtues of the man who fears the Lord. Single households may wish to use Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Maybe Psalm 34, 8 or Psalm 40, verses 4 through 11. And some blessings related to them, which remind them to trust the Lord and make him their refuge. Then next, the man of the household says the blessings over the wine and the bread. And the first blessing is the kiddush, which means sanctification. It's said over the wine or grape juice, whichever is being used. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. The man will then say the hamotzi lakim, the blessing over the challah bread. And some families have two loaves of bread to represent the double portion of manna that was provided on Shabbat during the 40 years in the desert. If you remember, they had a portion six days a week, excuse me, five days a week, then on the sixth day, they had a double portion so that they would not have to gather on the Sabbath. And that blessing is Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Ha'alam, Hamotzi Lakim Min Ha'aretz. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. On days other than Shabbat, the blessings are said in reverse order. In other words, the Hamotzi Lakim would be the first blessing. Then it would be followed by the Kiddush. So we see again this pattern that the Sabbath is special, it's to be set apart, it's to be different than other days of the week. Family would then enjoy their special Shabbat meal. They may want to follow it up with scripture readings, with songs, or some other meaning, meaningful activity that allows them to fellowship while also focusing on their creator. So, and as I said earlier, there's a lot of flexibility in how to celebrate. So feel free to customize this evening to meet the needs of you and your family. Saturday morning's typically time for the family to attend synagogue together. That allows them to rest from their normal activities and direct their attention to God. Typical service would follow the same basic structure as in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, but again with some flexibility. And we're not going to read that whole chapter. It's pretty lengthy, but I would suggest that you go and read Nehemiah 8 and just look at it and, and watch the pattern. It's interesting. But essentially, the service would open with praise, psalms, and hymns, okay? Would include a public reading of the Torah and the half-Torah. And since we're a Messianic congregation, we include the Brit Hadashah in that as well. And it would conclude with a sermon. Sound familiar? 
We have all those elements in our modern service. Shabbat service is typically followed by oneg, a Hebrew word which means delight. Have you ever wondered why we call it an oneg? It's because the Sabbath is to be a delight. And the oneg consists of something to eat. In most cases, it's simply refreshments. In our case, we do a full meal here because we stay all day. So we're blessed to be able to do that. In a traditional synagogue, however, the people often have their refreshments and then go home for the afternoon. And they will spend the remainder of the afternoon either visiting friends or simply resting. As I said here, we have lunch, we have oneg, and then we hang around we for classes and fellowship, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful day. While much of the typical Shabbat service is derived from Nehemiah chapter 8, the most detailed account of a Shabbat service is actually found in the Gospels, specifically Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And I want to look at that passage quickly. And this is talking about Yeshua. Now when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, on Shabbat he went to the synagogue as usual. He stood up to read, and he was given the scroll of the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The spirit of Adonai is upon me. Therefore, he has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the imprisoned and renewed sight for the blind, to release those who have been crushed, to proclaim a year of the favor of Adonai. After closing the scroll and returning it to the Shamash, he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He started to speak to them. Today, as you heard it read, this passage of the Tanakh was fulfilled. Now what we learned from that passage is that there were special readings from both the Torah and the half Torah, just as there are today. And in Yeshua's time, the last reader was customarily given the honor of expounding on the reading with a sermon. In this case, that honor was given to Yeshua, and his portion just happened to be from the book of Isaiah. And he proclaimed in his very short sermon on that passage that he was the very promised Messiah to fulfill the promise, the prophecy. The disciples, we see in scripture, continued to honor Shabbat after Yeshua returned to the Father. And the service pretty much continued to follow the same order. We see in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, and again, this is actually a third passage that we read in last, this past week's reading. Isn't this amazing how God orchestrates things? Three passages we're talking about this morning were actually in our reading. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 13, it says, Having set sail from Paphos, Shaul and his companions arrived at Perga in Pamphylia. There Yochanan left them and returned to Jerusalem. But the others went on from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, and on Shabbat they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Torah, so there's your Torah reading, and from the prophets, so you got reading from the Torah and the half Torah, the synagogue leaders sent them a message. Brothers, if any of you has a word of exhortation for the people, speak. And if you continue reading the remainder of chapter 13, which we won't take time to do now, you'll see that Paul did stand up, and he delivered a sermon, albeit slightly longer than the one Yeshua delivered in Isaiah. But he did deliver a sermon, so we have those same elements in the time of the disciples. For many families, Shabbat ends with a short ceremony known as Havdalah. Just as with Shabbat, the service or the ceremony also begins with the lighting of a candle. But in this case, it is a three-stranded braided candle. The candle is lit before the ceremony actually begins. An empty cup and a bottle of either wine or grape juice should also be available. Five blessings are said during this ceremony. The first is the Havdalah blessing. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, my God, is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And with joy you shall draw forth water from the springs of salvation. Salvation is the Lord's. Upon your people shall be your blessing. Selah. The Lord of hosts is with us. A stronghold for us is the God of Jacob. Selah. Lord of hosts, praised is the man who trusts in you. Lord, save, and may the king answer us on the day when we call. 
The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, so may it be for us. I will lift up the cup of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the first blessing. The second blessing is the blessing of the wine. And the wine, or the juice, is now poured into the cup until it overflows the cup. The cup is lifted in the right hand and the blessing is recited. And it's the same blessing we said earlier um, when we opened Shabbat. Dinner says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Then we have the blessing of spices. And a spice box that contains sweet-smelling spices such as cinnamon, cloves, or some other similar spices would be lifted up and the blessing would be pronounced. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates species of spices. Then we get the blessing of fire. Remember, the candle has already been lit. So the candle's been burning this whole time. So we say this blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who creates the lights of fire. Now we get to the fifth and final blessing. And that's the blessing of separation, when we acknowledge the ending of Shabbat and the beginning of the new week. And that is, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who makes a distinction between the holy and the secular, light and darkness, Israel and the nations, the seventh day and the six days of labor, Blessed are you, O Lord, who makes a distinction between holy and secular. At this point, the candle is dipped into the, the wine or the juice so that the flame can be extinguished. At that point, many people sing the song Shavuot Tov, which I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard. And that song simply wishes others a good week, a week of peace, and may joy and gladness increase. So it's a great way to start the new week. Since Shabbat is such an important day, and one that was appointed by God himself, have you ever wondered how and why Christianity established the first day of the week, Sunday, as the day of worship? Okay, we're going to take a quick look at that subject. As a young person, I remember being told that the disciples changed the day of worship because Yeshua was raised from the dead on a Sunday. And have any of you ever heard that one? That's what I was always told. The problem with that explanation is that there is absolutely no documentation in the Bible of such a change. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the disciples actually continued to honor the seventh day of the week as the weekly Shabbat throughout the scriptures and even beyond the scriptures when you look at church history. And that continued until the time of Constantine in the fourth century. Throughout the Brit Hadashah, we see Paul addressing numerous controversies about the faith, circumcision, Food offers, foods offered to idols, on and on it goes. But nowhere do we see him addressing a conflict about whether believers should meet corporately on the seventh day of the week or the first day of the week. That was not one of the controversies he, ha controversies he had to deal with. The seventh day of the week was the Sabbath. End of story. The only passage anyone has ever been able to point to in support of the alleged change is Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 quickly to give you the context, and then we'll look at what that passage is really saying. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. So it's the first day of the week, but there's a lot of lamps, so they had to have candlelight. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with him a long time until daybreak, and then he left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So I want to put this in context. First thing we see is that this occurred on the first day of the week. But what time did it occur? It occurred in the evening. Thank you. What did we talk about earlier about when the Shabbat begins and ends? Sunset. So if this is in the evening, this is after sunset. So first day of the week is what we in modern times know as Saturday evening. So in other words, most likely they were having a Havdalah service. 
Or either their Shabbat service had gone all day, who knows? I mean, with Paul there, you know, he, he had a lot to tell them. But he, anyway, he'd gone on way into the night, after midnight even. So they were actually meeting together on Saturday evening and into Sunday morning. Not as some people will tell you, oh, they were meeting together on Sunday. While it was, it was biblically Sunday, in our modern times it would not have been Sunday. Okay? So anybody who tries to tell you that otherwise, it, it doesn't work. The time just does not work. We're also told in that passage that they, there were many lamps there. That's why they were able to continue to meet in such a late hour. That explains why this young man grew sleepy, fell out the window. When we study history, we learn that after the disciples' deaths, Gnosticism began to rise up under the influence of philosophers who wanted to reconcile Christianity with paganism. And we talked about this in detail when I did a couple of teachings a few months back on the Greek influence in the body of Messiah. A strong anti-Jewish sentiment became widespread, in large part due to the revolts against Rome by the Jewish people. And by the time of Constantine, he was emperor of Rome, there was a division in the church on a number of issues. Constantine, const, con, ugh, const, that's a tongue twister there. Constantine consequently adopted Sunday as the day of worship for Christianity, making it illegal to worship on Shabbat. So they didn't willingly change it. It was illegal. Big difference there. And the disciples have been dead for generations. Okay, we're talking fourth century here. Because of the anti-Jewish sentiment that was continuing to spread, many of the people were all too happy to break rank with the Jewish people in this regard. So that's how Sunday. Okay? And I want to provide further evidence Further support, the Catholic Church takes full credit for changing the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. In the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine by Reverend Peter Gierman, we see this explanation. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church in the Council of Laodicea transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. So there's your answer. It has nothing to do with the disciples. It's not biblical. The apostles did not change the day of worship, nor is such a change documented anywhere in Scripture. The question did not even arise. Although believers did, admittedly, meet at times on Sunday to celebrate Yeshua's resurrection, there was never any intent to replace the Shabbat. Any corporate meetings on Sunday were in addition to and not in place of the seventh-day Shabbat. So I mentioned earlier, Shabbat is the most important of the biblical feasts. So if the apostles had changed or even contemplated changing it, it would have been documented somewhere in those writings, as there certainly would have been pushback from the ultra-religious Jewish leaders. They would not have sat back and taken it without stepping up and creating controversy, okay? And as if that isn't enough, there's, no, there's more evidence of the importance of Shabbat. It's not just for the present time, because there's also a prophetic fulfillment that we can look forward to. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we read, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. And I've got to flip it. No, oh, you got both of them there. Okay. Spiritual rest is the prophetic fulfillment of Shabbat. So it's for now and it's for the future as well. Our weekly Shabbat celebration is a wonderful reminder of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom of Yeshua, which will be a beautiful time of rest and corporate corporate worship of the King of Kings. In the meantime, we would do well to honor the Shabbat while also remembering Yeshua's words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our spiritual rest is in Yeshua. And with that, what I'd like to do is close with a beautiful song by Messianic artist Steve McConnell. The title of the song is Yom Shekelo Shabbat, and it sums it up beautifully. So let's see if I can get this to work now.
שקר או שבת, ה-time-man is all שבת, ה-yo-man is ever שלום, and we never, יום שקר או שבת. Shabbat is it's a sign to us from God. It's a promise of a pledge he made to us. It's not just for today. As you see, the millennial kingdom is all Shabbat. A thousand year rest in him. So we need to take Shabbat seriously. It's not just, oh, oh great, here comes Shabbat again. I gotta go to service. It needs to be a delight. So God said my Shabbat should be a delight to you. It should be a a delight. It should be something we look forward to. We come here anxiously, excited to be able to spend time with God, to focus on Him, to set this day aside to Him, and to fellowship with other believers, and to encourage one another, to study His Word. It's all about Him as the Shabbat is for Adonai. So, that said, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your Shabbat. We thank you for this beautiful time that you've given us, this time of rest. And most importantly, this time where we can just detach from the world, unplug from the things around us, and focus on you and what you've done and the promises that you've made to us and the beautiful future that's ahead for those of us who know you. Father, we lift up those to you that do not yet know you. We pray for the lost. We ask that they would come to find you, to find your peace, to find your rest. Yeshua, you said all who are burdened and heavy laden to come to you and you would give them rest. 
and we pray that they would find the truth of those words in their own lives. We thank you. We ask that you would be with us during this service and help us to truly take to heart and to learn to honor your Shabbat and to call it a delight, just as you have said. In Yeshua's mighty name we pray. Amen.